Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped round Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. John chapter 20, we're looking at one of four recordings of this amazing story from eyewitnesses. Verse 1 says, the first day of the week. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, this is a woman who was a disciple and follower of the Lord from an area called Magdala. So she's called Magdalene. She went to the tomb early while it was still dark, so probably like 5 a.m., and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Before we read on, I'd like to just uh, address one little confusing thing. 
called Good Friday. Um, the world loves its three-day weekends. And God forbid that we should celebrate Good Wednesday. It create too long of a day of rest, right? The Lord predicted he would be in the grave for three days. And if he died Friday, that's not three days, right? Here's the, here's the purpose of the confusion, not just the desire for a three-day weekend, but they hurriedly got him in the grave before the Sabbath, before the sun set, and Sabbath began. And so Sabbath being the seventh day of the week must have been Friday, but we've got a discrepancy here. What they failed to realize, theologians should know better, is the Jewish calendar has feasts, three main festivals that are part of the law. Um, and in those festivals are days of rest built in. So it was a festival Sabbath, part of the Passover feasting. And so they, they got him in the grave, and the stone rolled up before the sun went down prior to the festival Sabbath, part of the Passover celebration. So he's in the ground before two Sabbaths, technically. And so... Very possibly, he arose from the dead Saturday night, which is the beginning of the first day of the week. The evening and the morning were the first day. I mean, that goes all the way back to creation, that the Sabbath begins at sundown Friday and ends at sundown on the seventh day. And the first day begins at sundown on the seventh day, which is actually the beginning of the first day. So it messes with our Gentile minds, but I just wanted to point that out in case that was a barrier to anyone being a believer in the resurrection of Jesus. So back to the beginning. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John, the writer, referring to himself, not wanting to be, you know, not wanting to use the pronoun me all the time. So he refers to himself as that other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, according to Mark's record, uh, she went to the tomb with several women. That's not borne out in the story here, but Mark verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9, says Mary Magdalene was the first one to see the risen Lord. So up to this point, she knew about his prediction of death and prediction of resurrection, but in her mind, his body is missing. This is terrible. Can you imagine burying a loved one and then the grave gets redug and the body's missing? That's a, that's a crime. Peter, therefore, verse 3, went out, and the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter. Don't you like that part of the record? And came to the tomb first, but he didn't go in first. It says, he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him. <laughs> Just emphasizing that fact. There must have been some friendly rivalry there. These guys were humans. He came following him and went into the tomb. So, you know... He got in there first, technically, right? And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief 
that had been around Jesus' head, notice the word around, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So here they see the shroud, the cloths that Jesus was covered with. They took him from the cross. Those that loved him washed his corpse and put linen cloths on him, put him in the tomb, and then wrapped cloth around his head. And so they see the cloths lying there, and then they see this wrapping that was around his head laying there separate from the cloths by itself. Verse 8, Then the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. So he's quick to point out, I'm the first one that believed in the resurrection. Why did he believe? Was it just the empty tomb? No, it was the empty tomb, but it was the clothes laying there. Not wadded up by people who would have stolen the body. And who's going to steal a, a dead body and take all the clothes off and haul them out naked? I mean, who's going to do that? No men I know would like to do that, especially a dead body. It's been in the grave for three days. He, having received a glorified body, his mortality put on immortality, his terrestrial body becoming a celestial body, rose from the dead through his clothes, and they left, left them laying there. Now, some people who don't dig very deep said that Jesus took the, took the handkerchief or the napkin that was around his head and folded it up, just like you do when you're at a restaurant and you haven't enjoyed the meal, you fold up the napkin in disgust and stomp out. And so that's what Jesus did. He didn't enjoy that. He's glad it was over, and he folded his napkin and got up. He drank the bitter cup, enough of that. Well, that preaches a good sermon, but I don't think that's what happened. The Greek word here for folded is a word that means to wrap or to twist. So this cloth that was around his head was still in that, circular shape. The Greek lends itself to that. He rose from the dead through his clothes. John saw that. He became a believer. So Peter, I really beat you this time. Verse 9, For as yet they did not know the Scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. They didn't quite understand it theologically. But they knew he had promised it to them. Promised his resurrection to them. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Can you imagine the emotion they felt? But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. She was heartbroken. She was not yet a believer. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. So angels are just there hanging out. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now why didn't Peter and John see these angels? Well, angels being spiritual beings can reveal themselves to whoever they will themselves to reveal them, but I think there are some things that can only be seen through tears. God is close to the brokenhearted. She needed comfort, and she saw them. And so they asked her, Why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? (laughs) He must have been having fun with her. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. In other words, this was a borrowed tomb, so maybe the body had to be moved. Uh, Where have you taken him? Tell me, and I'll take responsibility for him. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Then she recognized his voice, the tone of his voice when he called her name. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for rabbi or teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. She's grabbing him, right? For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And if we had time, we could read the rest of the chapter that evening, Sunday evening, the beginning of the second day of the week. Jesus walks through the wall and proves himself to be alive in his glorified body. So what did he do between morning and night? He told her, don't hold on to me, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. So he ascended back to God in heaven, to his father to show himself alive to his Father, having completed the mission for which he came. There's a prophetic picture of what he did that day in Daniel chapter 7, where the scripture talks about the Ancient of Days, before whom appeared the Son of Man. It's a glorious picture, but that's not the sermon for today. But He satisfied the demands of justice by paying for the sins of mankind and appearing before the Father if just for a short time before coming back to earth to prove himself alive to his followers. So Jesus still has a body, yet he's present everywhere through his spirit. And yet his body is location-oriented. So his body isn't here, and yet it is here through his spirit in you and I. We are his body through the spirit of the resurrected one. I'd like to speak to you today for a few minutes on the subject, the resurrection of Jesus is. Can we say that together? The resurrection of Jesus is. I hope to address three things. The resurrection of Jesus is rational. The resurrection of Jesus is receivable. You can receive blessings in your life because of it. And the resurrection of Jesus is believable. And so my purpose, just get ready, is to hopefully see some unbelievers become believers today as a result of hearing this talk. The resurrection of Jesus is rational because of his enemies. Now, why would 
the people who wanted him dead, the people who wanted his influence killed, why would they be a reason to believe in the resurrection? Well, they were his, they wound up serving him. They were his hoax prevention team. The Bible says God made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of doom. You can't resist him. He'll wind up using you in some way to serve his purposes. Give him a mess, he'll make a message. Give him a test, and he'll give a testimony. So these guys prevented any fake resurrections from happening because they were afraid of a fake resurrection. So they took extra precautions by putting up 24-hour-a-day guards, 16 of them, to guard that tomb to make sure the body would not be stolen. Now, never mind the fact that his followers weren't even going to try that because they were scared out of their skin. They were disillusioned. On that tomb was a Roman seal making it a crime to break the seal. If you're in law enforcement, you have uh, crime scene tape. Who's seen yellow crime scene tape? If you ever approach a scene and it's got tape around it, do not cross that tape. That's, that would be a crime for you. Temporarily to keep the crime scene from being contaminated. And so here is this tomb sealed with a Roman seal, guarded with guards 24 hours a day, wind up being God's fake resurrection prevention team. It was also another reason to believe is his execution. He was killed by professionals. They knew what they were doing. And he was a, a dead man. So it's foolish to believe that somehow he, he had only fainted and after hours of being denied food and water and torture and loss of blood, that somehow he got up and got enough strength to roll the stone away and overcome the guards. Plus, the guards didn't tell that story. They, they told the story that they had fell asleep, and yet not one of them was charged. In fact, according to Roman law, Roman law if one of them had fallen asleep and allowed a body to be stolen, and they were, they were assigned to, to uh, prevent it, all 16 of them were punished with capital punishment, and yet there's no historical record of that happening. It's rational because of his empty tomb. There's no explanation. The body is missing. The tomb is empty. The church was born a short walk from this place. And in that tomb are these clothes just laying there. What was on his body and what was on his head. He rose up through his clothes. So in your resurrected body, you can't wear your favorite suit because it'll just fall off you. You've got to wear some celestial threads. The resurrection of Jesus is rational because of his eyewitnesses. People saw him. At one point, he was seen by 500 people. and There's some written testimonies of a few of those witnesses. Eyewitness testimony is admissible in the court of law. You can go to jail based on the testimony of a couple eyewitnesses. People are going to jail for less than that. But here we have plenty of eyewitness testimony to give us reason to believe. Now, if they were lying, if they were faking, one of them would have cracked, right? In fact, all of them would have cracked under torture and the threat of death and even death and loss of freedom and loss of property, yet not one cracked. Not only did they hold to their story, but they spread the story and many people became believers in just a matter of weeks, there were thousands of them. 
and it continued to spread to this day. It's rational because of his empowered people. His followers and his family were totally dismayed by his death, and yet he arose. Now, why did he die? Well, he died for the sins of man, and he died because God set it up. He died to prove a point that we need to believe in what God says. So Jesus came to this earth proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming who he was. Now Leviticus 24 is a law that says if someone blasphemes the name of God or blasphemes God, it is a capital crime, punishable by death. And so Jesus could not say the things he said unless they were true, because if they were not true, he was a blasphemer and worthy of capital punishment. So those that wanted him dead did not believe in him. And so it was a setup. What could they do? There again, those that resist God wound up being used for his purposes. What could they do? His influence had to be stopped. He's spreading a lie. He's taking God's name in vain. He's saying God is his father, and that he came down from his father, and that he's going back to his father, and he's, and he's displaying his power with miracles and saying, these are proof of who I am. You could not say the things he said if you were not divine. So he had to be killed by those religious authorities who did not believe in him. Now, after the resurrection, a great many of the priests became believers, which is another one of the great story. His enemies, many of them became believers. The resurrection is rational because of his expansive influence that continues to spread today in time, through the centuries, and space geographically. We're within 20 years of Bible translation work being done in the last languages of the world that do not yet have the scriptures. It won't be done in 20 years, but it will have begun. That's how close we are to completing the mission that Jesus began. His influence is expanding. The resurrection of Jesus is rational because of the enraging of the empire. This was a threat to them. They were the ones that killed him at their hands, right? For political reasons, can't have... The authorities under us upset us. Let's do what they want. They were the ones that did it. According to Leviticus 24, he should have been killed by stoning, but that wasn't a Roman form of execution. So they crucified him. But that didn't stop his influence. So over the centuries that followed, they did horrendous things, actually during the next century, to wipe out this story. But one day, the empire embraced it. Don't you know that was a glorious day of relief? Now, mind you, it brought other problems in the world. The thing like the state church and all that, it's never a good thing. You don't want the government discipling your kids. But the gates of hell did not prevail against the church. And then there's the engraving of world history. What year is it? You know, the proper way to say it is A.D. 2019. Did you know that? Before Christ, B.C., 
you put the acrostic BC, acronym BC, after the years. So uh, technically, Jesus may have been born 1 BC up to 3 BC, which is hilarious. But as his influence began to reign, they did their best when setting the clock up. The whole world operates according to this clock. AD doesn't stand for after death because of his resurrection. It's anno domino, which means the time of the Lord's reign. The, the word domino means to dominate or lordship or reign, and anno relates to time or annual. So anno domino is the Lord's reign. So here we are in AD 2019, the Lord's reign having begun at his birth. The whole world operates like this. Don't you know they hate it? Would not be so were it not for his resurrection. If he had just died, it would have been enough to have our sins atoned for, right? But he didn't stop there. He rose from the dead. Having been our sacrificial lamb, now he is our high priest to make sure the privileges he purchased are enforced upon his people. The resurrection of Jesus is receivable because our sin penalties are all remitted. We celebrated today how shame can be taken away in the name of Jesus. I'm, I'm telling you, it is possible. It is done. I know it by experience. Some people kill themselves because they can't get away from the shame for the things they've done. Yet in Christ, there's a remedy through faith in what he did for us on the cross, people who hated themselves have come to a healthy place where the shame is gone. There's no other religion in the world that deals with shame like Jesus. In fact, most world's religions will heap shame on you. Who's heard of shame killings? You bring shame on your family, your family will kill you. That's one of the big religions in the world. But in Christ, shame is uplifted. That's why as Christians, we got to make sure that we are believers in Jesus and not in a religion that's based on shame. Because that comes from the world. The secular world is huge on shame. They say they're not. You know, this is a shame-free zone, yet, yet let one school bus driver do something wrong with the brats on his bus, and the whole world begins to shame him. They're just twittering on how sorry he or she is. Shame, that's what they do best. But through Christ, our sins have been paid for. They've been atoned, they've been covered, yet it's better than atonement. It's redemption. It's as though it never happened, removed, a clean start. And now because of the resurrection, the forgiveness that's been purchased for us on the cross can be received. Received. That's our part, is to receive by faith what has been done for us. I hate to use the lottery in church as an illustration, but it is true. If you had a winning ticket and never turned it in, what happens to your prize? You forfeit it. Did you know that? You forfeit it. I never buy a ticket because I figure there's a billion chances I won't win. So. 
at the counter when I see people buying lottery tickets. I say, hey, give me that 20 and I'll give you back a 10. That's more than what you're going to get anyway. But they never go for it. They'd rather pay poor man's taxes. This is Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States. He served as a military general. He served in both houses of Congress. He's called our first uh, um, populist. President for the common man. During his presidency, he issued pardons, which presidents do, for a guy named George Wilson, who was incarcerated for male robbery, which was punishable by death. In fact, his partner in crime had already been executed. And someone approached the president for mercy for George Wilson. This was in 1833 and said, you know, George Wilson wouldn't have done this crime were it not for the influence of his friend. He wouldn't have done it. So can you grant some leniency? So he didn't pardon him to the point that his jail sentence was erased. He just pardoned him from death, all right? You know, Wilson refused the pardon. For a pardon to be complete, you know, you got to receive it and sign a document, and you're officially pardoned. He refused, so his case was taken to the Supreme Court. In 1833, the Supreme Court said, quote, a pardon is a deed. And we say deed. To the validity of which delivery is essential, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court can be forced upon him. Mr. Wilson was eventually hanged. Forgiveness has been extended. Our part is to receive it. That easy. The resurrection of Jesus is receivable because our fear of death can be removed. When we put faith in the resurrection, he takes away the fear of death. I've been to many funerals, grew up in a pastor's home, uh, been a pastor here for 20-some years since the end of 91. I've been to many funerals. It's not my favorite thing to do. But I can tell you there is a distinct difference between the funeral for a believer and an unbeliever. A believer's funeral, there are tears, but there's laughter, and there's joy, and there's assurance of seeing their loved one again. An unbeliever, you know, they'll play the guy's favorite music and try to say good things about him, but that's about it. That's about all you can do. It's pretty sad. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death? It can be removed from Jesus. Oh, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of water or heights or mice or snakes or spiders. If you chase those fears to their most extreme conclusion, they always lead to death. When I was a kid, my parents bought a home out in the country, and we moved out there in the first winter. Here comes the mice. I don't know how they did it, but they field mice moved up in the attic, and you could hear them at night. It took a while to get rid of them. And my grandparents came to 
stay with us. And my grandmother was eat up with fear, and we could hear her through the walls of the house. Thomas was my grandfather's name. They have mice. They could bite us. We could all die. In Christ, through the gospel, the fear of death has been taken away. So you literally, I believe, as we grow spiritually, can be freed up from all of our phobias. Our life can be totally regenerated. If we had time, every person here that's a believer could share a testimony of how the Lord changed their life. And it's continuing to change. Our minds can be renewed. Now, I say the word frequently because some Christians get their minds renewed and they stop. Oh, that's good. I'm done. No, we are transformed by the renewing and ongoing process of changing our stinking thinking. You know, we need a, a checkup from the neck up, Zig Ziglar said. We suffer from a hardening of the attitudes. So the scriptures and, and uh, brothers and sisters that love us help us change the way we think. You know, this is what repentance really is. It's to change your mind. It's to have the way you think adjusted. That's what preachers try to do, is to, to adjust our thinking. As our minds are renewed, it's awesome. Otherwise, we can be stuck. We may get more and more education, but we can be stuck with our old prejudices, our old fears, our old attitudes, our old addictions and our old hang-ups and aggravations, and angers, and welcome to the world. It needs a serious renewing of the mind. You know, when we become believers, the Bible says that our spirits are reborn. So we're reborn. And Jesus, who's the first fruits of the great resurrection, one day will return and we will rise from the dead and our bodies will be replaced. But right now, we're living in that time when our minds need to be renewed. Having been reborn, looking forward to being replaced, our bodies, our minds need to be renewed. If you've just been feeding your intellect with whatever secular media feeds you, your mind's not going to get renewed. You're going to get angry. Angry, especially in the political realm. Our world cannot erase the recording of the resurrection of Jesus. Talked about the tattoo. Here's an attempt. In textbooks today, you'll see the acrostic BCE and CE. BCE means before common era, and CE means common era. I'm not going to get a placard and protest it and all that. It'd be a total waste of time. But let me ask you, why is BCE BCE? Because that's the time before Christ. And why is CE CE? Who determined when CE begins? Because that's the time of the reign of Christ. So you can't get away from it, right? Lord, I pray that we would receive the benefits of your sacrifice through the great resurrection. Now, I don't get all shook up over the word Easter. Understand Easter is a pagan day that refers to the goddess Ishtar. But I'm telling you, this is when Christ rose from the dead, either this day or a week from today. 
Ishtar's day got trashed. Every day belongs to the Lord, right? Every day is the Lord's day. So someone says, happy Easter. I say, yes, amen. Christ is risen. Amen. In conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus is believable because I just can't believe. It's just too far-fetched for me. Really? Let's ask some hard questions. Let's, Let's look at the inability to believe compared to the things you already do believe. We'll often believe more than we understand. Anybody use the internet? Maybe some people in here can fully understand it. Anybody here use electricity? You put your trust in it? Some of us have all electric homes, I do. Totally trust in that, man. Haven't lit up that fireplace in years, just trust in it. I do not fully understand it. So believing in more than we understand is not a foreign concept. Think about it. Well, I only believe what I fully understand. I don't think you're being honest. Because no one knows everything about everything. Well, I know Google. Well, do you understand Google? We'll often believe more than we can observe. Who's ever flown in an airplane or ridden on a train or driven in a car? Did you watch that thing being built before you put your body, your destiny, your future in the hands of those people who were paid to assemble parts that were made by the lowest bidder? You trusted in things you don't always observe. We will often believe in eyewitness testimony. If we don't, shut the courts down and just fill the jails up with people who need justice. The world would fall apart. Burn all the history books. Eyewitness testimony is useless. Really? Are we going to throw that out? Of course we believe eyewitness testimony. We will often believe in desirable benefits. Who has a job? How do you know they're going to pay you next Friday? Are you going to show up tomorrow and go to work? Are you going to work your assigned schedule hoping they pay you? Well, they've been faithful thus far. Yeah, but how do you know they're going to be faithful tomorrow? You know, companies go under. How do you know? Because you put your faith in the benefit of being paid for your time because it is a desirable benefit, so you risk your faith. Hello? I'd a whole lot rather stand before Almighty God, having risked my faith in the gift of His Son, than no faith at all, take the chance. If there is no God, if there is no resurrection, believing in it isn't going to hurt anything. will often believe if doing so helps us. Who has insurance? Who believes in insurance? It helps you. If something goes wrong, something will cost you a whole lot more than what that insurance is. But how do you know that insurance company won't go under? Who puts your money in the bank? Anybody have a bank account? Well, I keep mine in my freezer. Well, you better trust the padlock in your freezer. We believe in things all the time, 
those things that help us. And we've already looked at a list of a few of the things that are receivable because of what Jesus did on the cross available to us through the resurrection. And we will often believe if someone helps us who's been to school. As a result of education, there's things you believe because of experiments. Somebody helped you in a lab to see, don't mix those chemicals together. They'll, they'll explode and blow your hands off. So you learn from the help of teachers. That's my favorite point because I'm a believer in the resurrection of Jesus today because I got some help. Not by some weak, offensive, or abrasive, or pushy preacher, but because the Spirit of God gave me an awareness. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we are saved through faith in the risen Lord. And that faith in the risen Lord isn't me. It isn't my IQ. It isn't my intelligence. It isn't my diplomas or my goofy badges or my merits. But it's the gift of God given to me, the ability to believe that which is impossible to believe do we not receive supernatural help. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but might have everlasting life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is the good news, what's called the gospel, in a nutshell. If you find yourself beginning to believe that, that is saving faith, dawning in your heart. In a minute... I'm going to give you an opportunity to today to step out, to take a risk, to put your faith in that which you don't fully understand for the sake of the benefits that it will provide, the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. I'm going to have us bow our heads and I'm going to lead those of you in a prayer that want to Become a believer today. Maybe you've strayed from the Lord, you've not lived as a believer, and you want to come back to him today. I would like to lead you in a prayer. And a prayer will be something like this. Oh, God in heaven, I call on your name. I ask you to save me. I believe in Jesus Christ as your son. I believe that he died for our sins, and I believe that he's risen from the dead. Come into my life and make me your child. That's what it will be like if you would raise your hand to do that. Let's bow our heads. If you'd like to be a believer today and pray that prayer with me, could you just raise your hand up and hold it up? Anyone here? Okay, let's pray together. All of us, everybody in the room. Oh God in heaven, I want to be your child. I believe in Jesus as, as your son. Jesus, I call on your name. I ask you to save me. I believe that you died for our sins. 
and I believe that you've risen from the dead. Make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Just no.